Hello and welcome back. I'm Nicole Watson. You're listening to The Weekly. This week we unpack the threat to Scotland's coasts and Edinburgh shoreline. A study suggests that the capital's iconic Leith docks and much more of the east coast could give way to severe flooding. We also spoke to a former Met Office advisor and weatherman for his take on climate change throughout the last 40 years. The Edinburgh branch of Extinction Rebellion, which is a renowned global environmental movement, is leading the way with keeping this issue in the public sphere. You may remember them from the controversial actions in London last year, when they occupied five major sites in the city, blocking angry commuters from getting to work. They have an action scheduled for the 17th of October. This will take place from half one until half three outside the Scottish Government building by the shore in Leith which ironically would be one of the first affected by an encroaching coastline. A coastal risk screening tool provided by the independent scientific body Coastal Climate Central paints an alarming picture. It's basically a map that shows large portions of New Haven, Leith, leading along to Portobello and other areas of Scotland in a red zone. And this red zone indicates areas that will be below annual flood level by 2050. I spoke with award-winning author David Ferrier. He's the convener of Edinburgh Environmental Humanities Network and chair of Literature and the Environment at Edinburgh University. I reached out to him to ask him a few questions about the threat to Edinburgh shoreline and to get some clarification on exactly what annual flood level means. I was only able to speak with him via speakerphone, so please excuse the audio. So this prediction insists that by 2050, the water level will rise at any given time in the year, high enough to submerge large areas of our east coast. As Professor Farrier clarified, this doesn't necessarily mean that much of Leith would remain underwater permanently. But what would this mean for Edinburgh's beloved Leith? The area impacted by flooding would cover Leith Primary School, Ocean Terminal, myriad businesses and residences. And such drastic flooding would have dire consequences for hundreds of locals. So I went to Leith to have a chat with a few business owners to find out their thoughts on the issue. Bear in mind, I was visiting busy cafes in the heart of Leith while maintaining social distance. So you'll be treated to a little of the hustle and bustle of the city. One business owner I spoke to, based directly on the shore, told me that his business had already been affected by flooding. Um, when you get a high tide it sometimes fills your cellar up not so much recently 
but no, we've had no warning of floods. Um, and does that change your insurance policy here, or can you be insured for it? It's a bit like COVID. You think you're insured for these things, but we'll see what happens when we actually get a flood. And so by 2050, it's supposed to be completely submerged by water over here. Would that affect your plans long term? No, because I'll be dead. James Anderson, who owns the Shore Delhi company in Leith, told me of the safeguards in place that he was already aware of. The people that run the docks, um, I know that they, they lower the level when they're expecting heavy rainfall. Um, but further down, uh, I don't know of any sort of defences specifically. Um, and in terms of the, the long term, um, obviously that's quite, quite far in the future. I would imagine that it probably wouldn't affect us in terms of our business. I wouldn't probably expect to still, still be running this shop at, at that point. The running theme of my conversations with business owners was surprisingly a lack of concern. It seems that the general consensus is the predictions from Climate Central are for 2050. It isn't my problem. I asked Professor Ferrier whether this matter should still be considered a matter of urgency. Let's deal with it later, seems to be becoming an environmental adage. But is this the stance that's being taken by the government? Vice News reported that the 2015 National Risk Register of Civil Emergencies ranked coastal flooding as the second highest risk of civil emergency. This raises the question about whether the government is doing enough to communicate the risk to citizens if those on the front line aren't in the know. Last year, the Scottish government dedicated £420 million over 10 years to protect homes and businesses in our most flood-prone areas. We can only hope that it's not too little, too late. We'll be back with you after this short interval. Hi, I'm Veronica and I'm going to teach you how to make your own face mask today. Now, there are a lot of different ways to create your own face covering. But this method was by far the fastest and easiest way I discovered. It does not require any sewing at all. Face masks help prevent the spread of COVID-19 and prevent you from unknowingly passing the virus onto someone else. Now you'll only need a material for your covering like an all t-shirt or any piece of cloth really of the material and pattern colour that you like. A couple of hair ties or rubber bands and a pair of scissors to cut the piece of cloth you'll be using into a square. Step 1. Fold your piece of cloth in half. Step 2. Fold the top down and the bottom up as if you were folding a letter. Step 3. Place the rubber bands or hair ties around your cloth and about 6 inches apart onto the sides. The rubber bands will go behind your ears to hold the mask into place. Step 4. Fold the side pieces of clothing onto the middle and tuck in. Finally, make sure that your face covering fits you comfortably, covers your nose and mouth 
and it shouldn't be difficult for you to breathe. Homemade masks are not only eco-friendlier, but also more comfortable than regular plastic masks, more suited to one's facial structure and easy to clean. Our podcast editor Brendan Duggan spoke to a former Met advisor about our national reaction to climate change and was asked if our perceptions have shifted at all since the 90s. Alex had a phrase he would tell people back when he was working at the Met. There is nothing you do, day or night, that him and his staff don't have anything to do with. The Met have a huge input in our lives. They affect the amount of energy that flows through our houses, the gas that goes through the pipelines. It all depends on the weather and the forecast. Therefore, falls under the jurisdiction of the Met. The Met is an organisation we often miss out on when speaking about climate change. So earlier this week, I spoke to Alex Hill, the former head of the London Weather Centre and former Met chief advisor to the Scottish government. I asked him about his career in the Met, climate change and how Scotland cannot fight but adapt to climate change. What is the world of weather the um, public knows as weathermen? Yeah. I imagine yeah. I, I imagine for some reason you guys have your own secret society somewhere. Um, <laughs> What, what we're, a very, we're a very exclusive bunch. There are very few of us. I joined the Met Office, I think it had about 3,000 staff. It's now about 1,200. So we're, we're very exclusive. You know, We don't let everybody in. Can you kind of give us a, a, a brief um, description of, of, of what your work was um, over your 40 years in the Met Office? It, it's a long and tortured process. Um, after university, I, I, I couldn't get a job, basically. It was the early 70s and... Uh, Unemployment was through the roof, and uh, I had never intended to become a meteorologist, but uh, I got a job as an observer at Glasgow Airport. That was my first job, so standing out in the rain, um, naming clouds, which was quite fun for a wee while. Uh, and then the Met Office, of course, had it, still had its own college, so I went to their college for the meteorology bit, and did an applied meteorology course and an advanced forecasting course, and that was me into forecasting. Um, and from there on, I forecast, provided forecasts for everything from bananas to oil rigs, uh, jumbo jets, and uh, well, not quite jelly babies, but um, certainly um, the retail industry became very interested in it. In the uh, late 80s, I went down to London Weather Centre and was a senior forecaster there for a few years. And that's where I did my first television stuff with IT. ITV in those days. In fact, I mean, I have one small claim to fame is I was the first ever national weather broadcaster on ITV. And that lasted a few years, but again, like everything else, these things come to an end. Uh, and I went mm -hmm. back to London Weather Centre as the boss uh, and was managing London Weather Centre for about four or five years. And at that point, uh, we then started to take over the management. I mean, I ended up managing the Met Office assets and the Ministry of Defence all across southern England and Europe. So it was uh, a very managerial task. But at the same time, um, the whole uh, climate change thing was kicking off. We had the 1998 uh, first real iteration of a, of a global idea of what, what climate change was becoming. And that's when you started to study that. I did a little bit of teaching around there. Uh, eventually, though, that, that, that kind of comes to an end. And I, I came north... Uh, ostensibly to be um, the Met Office advisor to the Scottish Government and to the Northern Ireland Parliament. 
that was basically dealing with uh, the attempt to write a climate change act in Scotland and the Floodgates Management Act in Scotland as well. And at the same time, you're, you're trying to uh, continually keep the ideas of climate change in people's minds. So you go to conferences and give lectures and teaching and all sorts of things all over the country. So, What was the Met Office like before the 1990s where climate change wasn't nationally known? What was it like before climate change? <laughs> well, we were still working away on it. I mean, Met Office has been working away on climate change since the early 90s. But because... At the same time, we're developing computer systems and everything's improving all the time. The Met Office now runs one of the biggest computers in, in, in the UK um, and selling one of the fastest. What computer is that? This year, the Met pledged $1.2 billion for a new supercomputer. They hope the computer will be able to predict the weather faster by creating a carbon copy of the Earth's atmosphere in real time. As well as this, they hope it will help predict the effects that climate change will cause. The Met also run the UKCP the United Kingdom Climate Prediction, a kind of risk assessment for the planet. Before the 70s, the Met heavily relied on graphs, charts and fax machines. But even back then, climate change was beginning to rear its head. And so you, you say that um, even before the 90s, you, you, you did know about it, is that correct? And we, we, had, we, we were beginning to understand that, I think would be the way I would put it. And we were beginning to see that there was... I mean, we've had, we've had the big 70s scare. Oh, we're in for a new ice age. That was, that, that was the big 70s scare. Well, you're too young to remember that. The big 70s scare was, uh, we're, we're heading for a new ice age. Now, wait a minute, that's not quite a bit odd. And then people started to look much more closely at things, and we began to understand how the atmosphere functions mathematically and scientifically. And as you then develop that and get the computing power in place to be able to make these kind of long-term calculations. The calculations are based on some work that was done by Richardson way back in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, so it, it, there's been a long history of developing what they call numerical weather prediction. Um, but it's only really come to the fore in the last, I would say, 25, 30 years as the computing has improved. Edinburgh, for example, Edinburgh University's got a great computer for it. It, it does remarkably well. So it's about the machinery. It's actually about the technology. Mm. In the 90s, where, um, when I guess climate change became a worldwide issue, what was it like in the Met Office around that time? What Was it a big wake-up call, or did you guys just kind of blast ahead like, like normal? I think it was, I, the, the problem is really, uh, and I, I see what you mean, yes. Am, um, I wrong? Am I wrong in saying that, that kind of in the 90s there was a wake-up call, or was... We had at that time, the difficulty we still have, in fact, in, well, not we anymore because I'm no longer there, but the Met Office is a, is a, is a government organisation. So it, it's limited in what it can do. It can do all the science and it can put it in front of people, but it can't proselytise on behalf of climate change. We're, we're not in that kind of situation. Well, I think it's become a little more obvious now that big brain scientists are being a bit noisier about it, and it certainly has been the case over, I think, over the last 10 years, since the CPO9 output, but it started to get really quite political, and that's when we were starting to get the uh, climate change acts down south and the, the climate change acts up here in Scotland as well. So it, it starts to get political at that point, and then you're getting... Um, me, for example, and, and some of the scientists from down from the Met Office headquarters 
coming up and briefing ministers in Scotland and briefing the uh, committees in Scotland and talking to the likes of Patrick Harvey and, and Rosanna Cunningham and, and even Alex Hammond at one point. So in, in a sense, it, it, although we're not, although as civil servants we're not political, we are presenting the information much more cogently than I think we did uh, prior to that. And how was that experience for you doing that, trying to appeal to, to MPs and to the people in power, the people who can make the real decisions and actions? Yeah, I think in, in, in Scotland, uh, certainly in my experience, my, my, my equivalent down south um, is still there, still working with Westminster. Um, in Scotland, I think they were, generally speaking, very receptive. I didn't really have, in any, at any point, anybody say, well, that's rubbish. Um, we had questions, sensible questions from most people. Um, there were one or two sceptics that you came across, but there were few and far between. Um, and most of it, certainly during that sort of 2008, 2009 time, when the act was being written, and with support from people like SEPA and Scottish Natural Heritage and all the other organisations that, that are in Scotland, um, Change Works, you can, you can bring them off as dozens of them. Um, it was pretty collegiate in the sense that, yeah, we really need to try and do something. And at the same time, you were getting flood events, you were getting all the other things going on in the background. The Flood Risk Management Act was the other big thing which was going through at the same time. And the Flood Risk Management Act is actually crucial because it was the bit that had a real impact for people because they suddenly realised actually that the, there was a correlation between two different parts of government. And that, that, that was quite a, quite a revelation. And I think the Scottish Parliament um, really took it on board that there was a wider issue uh, here to be dealt with. And I think relatively... Relative to most places, and it's done remarkably well. Do you think there was enough action taken back then? Uh, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, because you, you can persuade, you can give people information, but if people don't act on that information, and I'm not talking about the Parliament, I'm just talking about people in general, um, if people don't act on that information, nothing changes. Um, so I have to say, in general, I'm pretty depressed about um, global action, which has been actually pretty pathetic over the last 10 years. And uh, I see no signs of it's getting any better, frankly. And how um, accountable do you think the UK, we're quite a small country, we can only have so much impact on on the environment in terms of global giants to our east and to, to the west? How? I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, there are two sides to that. Um, the first side is our direct carbon output, if you like, is minuscule, let's be frank. Um, and if the UK went uh, carbon neutral completely next week, it would make very, very little, if any, difference. Let's be honest about that. Um, because we're not a huge producer. Um, for head of population, we're actually quite, but probably mid to upper uh, levels. Ahead of population, the biggest output is still the USA, um, but the biggest total output comes from China. So again, it depends how you measure it. What we can do is encourage the others to be more sensible um, and, and to, to, prove it, to move it on. But the big, the big change has to be hugely economic. Um, we have to stop 
doing an awful lot of what we're doing on this. That is completely unnecessary. And I'll give you one example. Uh, and it's, 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 it's a fairly mundane example, but it's, it's, it's a simple thing. Most people, many guys that I see walking around, um, they've just bought a bag of uh, disposable razors. Those disposable razors are made in China. So you've got the plastic and the energy and the steel to make the razor. The razor goes in a bag, the bag goes in a box, the box goes in another box, and it's transported 8,000 miles across the planet to the UK. That box goes in the back of a lorry. The lorry drives all the way around the country, dropping these bags off. You go pick them up and you use it for a couple of weeks and you chuck it in the bin. That has to stop. That's the problem. The problem is not necessarily your direct production of CO2. It's only indirect production of CO2 that is remarkable. These are the kind of things that have to stop. We have got to stop over-consuming. Simple and straightforward as that. And we're not doing it. And therein lies therein lies the problem. So if Western civilization, which is essentially dependent now upon Chinese uh, manufacturing, simply stops as much as possible, then we will reduce the CO2 output remarkably quickly. But will it be quick enough? Will it be enough? Um, frankly, I'm not. I'm not convinced. You know, we need to. We need to slow down and think. We've got to stop. Well, basically, GDP has to become uh, a nice historic document. It's irrelevant. It should become increasingly irrelevant. We have to get back to looking at the biosphere and the world as a whole and measuring our success differently. Until we, until we get away from money being the be-all and end-all as a measure of success, we will fail. And... Uh, we will become extinct, frankly. A lot of people don't think of um, meteorologists um, having any impact on their life, but you, you go into all the aspects with electricity um, and the forecast that does impact their li everything they do in their lives. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think people need to start waking up to the fact that um, climate change will also impact every single aspect of their lives? Oh, undoubtedly, but persuading people to that is quite is very difficult. Um, what time is it? It's eleven o'clock, ten past eleven. You've probably, but before you get out of bed in the morning, you you've used four weather forecasts. By the time you get to work, you'll have used six. By the time you get to lunchtime, you'll have used ten weather forecasts without knowing about it. And it's that sort of background that people need to understand. And climate change is changing all the criteria for all these things. And if that keeps going, then all the other stuff, the kind of things that we take for, for granted, electricity, gas, cornflakes, cup of coffee, all these things that we take for granted will be changed. And whether or not they'll still be there is open the question. We are going to see um, the impacts of climate change in the future. It's especially with Scotland. There's been warnings of that there will be many more floods in the future, um, yep. around the country. What do you think we can do now to, I guess, adapt, not prevent, but adapt in a way? We have a lot of things we can adapt to. Um, we need to adapt. Obviously, flooding is hugely, hugely problematic. Um, not as problematic in Scotland as it is in other parts of the world. 
Um, you've got to be prepared, for example, um, for as sea levels rise, and you're going to have troubles in places where, um, for example, that the, the Bangladesh will lose vast amounts of its landmass over the next 10 to 30 years um, as the sea levels rise. We're already seeing down south, you're seeing um, salt marshes uh, where they used to be farmland. You've got managed retreat with the Environment Agency. You've got whole parts. I mean, Scotland's quite lucky in the sense that we are unlikely to lose an awful lot of our coastline very quickly. Um, nevertheless, it is gradually happening, and it's such a slow process that that kind of flooding is likely to increase it from, from, the, from the sea. River flooding is immensely difficult to control, um, but we need to think about how we restructure um, our land in general to be able to cope with more water falling on it at a greater rate and in short episodic periods as opposed to sort of long-term rainfall. Um, that takes, there's an awful lot of discussion goes on in the background about that all the time, so that, that needs to be looked at quite considerably. And until we, we, we change our attitude to how we deal with, with water, um, and be prepared for things, then I think we're going to continue to get troubled. Uh, fluvial flooding, fluvial flooding, the two different, the two main types. Rainfall is, is a big problem for cities. Their draining systems aren't, aren't really designed to cope with the, the, the incoming rainfall um, because most of it was built probably in the 19th century, certainly in some cities. So that kind of stuff needs to be looked at. If you look at what they've done in the Netherlands, um, they have built huge infrastructure to cope with vast amounts of water, and we just don't have it, and that needs to be done. This idea of a, a beefy riverside residence um, really has to go out of people's minds and uh, start building things on stilts in certain places. When we met, it was at the um, climate strikes outside um, Parliament, um, organised by uh, young uh, school, high school children, young uh, young people. And um, yeah. why did you um, why did you go there? Why why were you there that day? Um, because I wanted to support them. <laughs> it's it, it, it's been remarkable, actually. It, I mean, I'm you know, I'm a member. I've walked around with climate ex, ex, uh, climate. They got uh, Extinction Rebellion and there's been a various protests in their area because unless we make noise, people don't listen. So we need to make louder noise. Um, it was fascinating. It was remarkable. The number of people of all ages who were, who were in that group um, gave me a small smidgen of hope that perhaps you know, we will get enough of us, make enough of a change to, to, to start to make a difference. But it's a long way away. Thank you for joining us today for The Weekly. I'm Nicole Watson. I've been your host. The Weekly is produced by Ian Fournews and Energy Radio. I was joined today by our editor and reporter, Brendan Duggan. And special thanks to Veronica Kahn for her demonstrations.